to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Croden, and welcome to this very special and important edition of the Safety Doc Podcast. So we are going to be talking today about the truth of how schools in the United States are and will respond to the coronavirus. So right now I'm going to be changing the overlay on the screen so it's back to me, and there we are. Um, so, folks, this, this is very important. I put together a lot of information in a short amount of time to get this out because I'm getting a lot of inquiries about parents asking, what happens if our school shuts down? Now, I want to preface that I have unique expertise and qualifications to present on this topic because I was in schools for 20 years as a teacher, also as an administrator, retiring in July of 2019. So I'm very familiar with how schools operate. In addition to that, very familiar with school safety plans and school crisis management plans. So I'm going to give you the inside perspective of what's likely happening in your school systems right now as they either are putting their first response forward with coronavirus or they're preparing to respond. And we're going to cover some things today that would be crucial for you to understand as a parent, and especially if you're a parent of a student with a disability, how these things will impact your child. So a few things. One is I have an article. Um, it's available out on the web from Crisis Response Journal, which is crisis-response.com. If you type in my name, the title is Bullets or Bacterium in Pursuit of the Forgotten School Intruder. It was posted on August 7, 2019, and I talked about the um, MRSA bacterial in infection um, crisis of 2014 and how that kind of faded away, right? We, we were supposed to have this national um, database for tracking MRSA, much more aggressive systems throughout schools and hospitals and, and so forth, and it never came to be. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And that article, though, is a good um, kind of, uh, I guess, a good way to stage what we're going to be talking about today. I talked about what happened in school districts that were concerned with MRSA and school districts going out and spending $100,000 on these germ-zapping robots. Um, and all of that is happening again right now with the coronavirus. But let's move on. Uh, a few disclaimers. Um, I am a doctor, but a PhD, not an MD. So I don't have any knowledge other than the knowledge that you are able to access through different websites and um, CDC, other um, Johns Hopkins, uh, so forth, updating about the virus. Um, so I'm not giving any medical advice today. Also, I'm uh, not an attorney, so I'm not giving any legal advice today, but I'm giving you very critical, important insight to what is likely happening, unfolding right now. And as somebody who has gone through H1N1 um, in schools at a time of SARS, um, I'm going to, to have very authentic, very important information for you right now. Things that you're probably not hearing on the mainstream media. So I spoke about this also on the Mallard Report back on March 3rd. That episode was live. Um, a lot of call-ins, but uh, that will be released in the next day or two. Mallard, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. Um, Check out the Mallard Report. But many questions coming in back uh, a week ago. Uh, people wondering what was going to happen in school. So I have a prepared statement I want to go through. Um, here we go. Schools are woefully un underprepared to handle long-term closures due to the coronavirus. Don't be fooled by germ-zapping robots or custodians fogging hallways with disinfectant. I worked in 20 years in schools, most of that being as a school administrator. 
In this episode, I'm going to step you through what's happening both publicly and behind the scenes in America's schools. So for starters, let's get a context. 55 million students are educated every day in 140,000 public and private school buildings. Okay, That's more than 1 million classrooms. Now we think about schools. We think about a brick and mortar school. Well, actually, let's broaden that to what our actual school sites are. Community preschool sites. A lot of schools partner with 4Ks, with daycares to provide um, preschool. So we have all of those sites to consider. Portable classrooms and also online instruction, whether that be students taking class full-time online or splitting between the school Uh, physical school environment and the online environment. So we have a lot of people, students that we have to think about, and also staff, families, people using our school facilities on weekends. Hey, a school that I worked with, um, on the weekend it had a standing contract it rented out with a church, and church um, service was held in the auditorium. So all of these different events, athletic events happening in your schools, So the majority of schools have an antiquated pandemic response protocol. It's likely in a file or some online PDF format that they have. Um, And they likely got it in whole from a a website. They downloaded it. This wasn't something they meticulously put together. And the reason is it's a lower probability, right? Schools right now are inundated with do your active shooter drills, your intruder drills, fire drills, but they're not required to prepare a pandemic drill. So it's very unlikely that this um, any anyone has even been remotely aware of this until a month ago in the district, you know, that they're, they're going through and they're having to find this. And they're, scam, they're, they're moving very fast right now to, at state levels to get documents out to districts and say, here, you know, use this template. So the templates are out there, but have schools actually prepared for pandemics? The likelihood is no. Have they gone through any type of simulations for this? Absolutely not. Uh, Have they maybe done a tabletop exercise? Maybe, but if they did, the odds are it hasn't been replicated in the last three to five years. So they're very underprepared for this, right? Now, I'm also going to tell you reasons why schools don't become more prepared for pandemics as we get into this. But you need to know right now that during the winter break, you know, just a month and a half, two months ago, this was not on any school's radar at all. Okay, so um, you're also going to you'll also learn today that there is little that a school can do during a pandemic. Okay, and this is another reason why schools can only prepare so far for this. Um, but a school can become a FEMA disaster site, and that's actually part of my county's plans and other counties around here. I had the unique experience of being in a district, working in a district, when FEMA did come in um, through a disaster order and took over two of the school buildings. And I'm going to talk about what that looks like. That was due to a flood, a natural disaster. It wasn't due to a pandemic, but this would be very similar in how this would roll out. So we're going to go through that today. Um, having uh, K it, it, Here's another thing. Having K-12... Um, Students attend school online for more than a week or two. You know, this thing of, well, we'll just make school online. That's not going to work. You you need an entire format for that to happen. You need to design your curriculum to deliver it online. Parents need to have that on the other side, you know, a system that they can use that interfaces with that. It's not like you can instantly just turn these classrooms into online settings. So that's another um, uh, a disservice, I think, that's being shared out there. We'll just go online. I know some universities have done it already here in the last day or two, said we're going to go online for the next how many weeks. You can do that, right? Universities have different systems, Blackboard, others, which are electronic um, systems. They're typically running those anyway. Like most classes do have an online component, even if it's a face-to-face class. But we think about K-12, think about it, kindergarten. How do we run an online kindergarten or third grader, a student with disabilities who is in second grade? Um, how do we replicate these these things? And you know, schools also have a number of support staff, counselors, psychologists. So how are we providing these types of services? So to just think we put everything online, that's obviously not going to work. It will work in the short term. Um, and I, where I live here in Wisconsin, I mean, if, if we get a, 
a blizzard that, you know, knocks down everything for, uh, you know, three, four days before they can get the plows, get things opened up. Hypothetically, you know, if you needed to go online and have some assignments, some instructions some videos that kids watched or whatever, could you do it? Yeah, I mean, you could get through in the short term for maybe a week, maybe two weeks. This will not be a solution, though, for the coronavirus at all. You're going to see schools are either going to have to make a decision that they will uh, cancel, um, you know, basically the rest of, of the school year. They'll have to get some directive from the state. What are you allowed to to basically excuse out of what's called like a force majeure, something you didn't anticipate? Um, you know, what could we do? I mean, for example, if there was like a solar flare and it knocked out some of the electrical system, you know, key electrical systems and it was like, OK, it's going to be, you know, six months until these get up and operating. What would we do? So there's going to be a, a whole series of decisions that will be made at a county, a state, or a federal level, and maybe all of those, and very soon. So I want to key you in on what to look for right now. Um, and finally, all of all of this, um, all of this stuff, which I'm telling you, is likely to unfold in in the next few days. This isn't going to be um, something that is, you know, we're it's, we're going to wait another three, four, five weeks before this. No. The, what I'm telling you, and I'm going to release this, and it, it might have already happened. So um, today is March 9th. It is 7.20 p.m. Central Time. So just, you know, timestamp this. But this is going to happen extremely rapidly. Um, and we also have to think if we have students with disabilities, what, is, what does this look like for students with disabilities who have federally mandated services through their IEP's individualized education plan, 15% of our 55 million students are identified with disabilities. How do they receive their services when they are not in that school setting or likely when the school is not going to be sending providers, for example, into their home because everything is, is largely going to be shut down? So you know, what, is, what does this look like? So um, projected benchmarking, projected benchmarking, is not, here we go. Sorry about that, folks. Um, projected benchmarking is not useful. So I talked about this in my book, School of Errors. I actually wrote about it in School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America. Projected benchmarking is when you look at what's happening now and you try to compare it to something that happened in the past. So people will say, well, if we look at the 1918 flu, so we look 100 years ago, um, what can we learn from from that? Well, you know, we learned that you know people having kids stay home from school actually was effective in stopping the spread of of the virus. Well, right, but the thing is, it's very difficult to do projected benchmarking that makes any sense today because things move at a much more accelerated, rapid pace. And let's go back. I mean, in 1918, we had a population of 103 million in the United States. Now we have 330 million. We didn't have air travel. We didn't have, you know, international travel was, you know, by, by boat. Um, still an agrarian society, uh, still, you know, spread apart even within our, our cities. Um, very limited mass media panic. I mean, it was what was going to be uh, reported out um, in the news, um, in the newspaper, right? The, the newspaper kids running around, you know, printing off like when the Titanic sinks. So, so that's what we're going to be looking at. So what what would actually cause schools to close? So this this is a big question that has has five parts to it. What would cause your school where your kids are going, what would cause that to close? One is if there's a positive test for school staff for a student who's been attending school. So they test positive for the coronavirus, COVID-19. So we're talking about So they, they test positive. Um, that will shut down your school. There's no way your school will continue to operate after that. They would shut it down. Now, granted that the, that the student had been attending school, not that they had been somewhere else and like flown back and, and didn't have any interaction in that school setting. But let's say that they were in that school environment. No way. The school would shut down and they would go into a deep, you know, disinfecting process. Um, they would be asking for the county that the county would be intervening. They would be communicating with parents. Here's what you want to watch for. Um, and who knows? I mean, we don't know what is available right now for test for screening tests because kids get sick, right? Kids get the flu, kids get cold, colds, things like that. So it's that time of year. Um, how do we dis distinguish those out? So um, if uh, anybody tests positive, staff or student, that school is shutting down. Just expect that to happen. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast. 
with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. The second is it's a, a local decision. So um, customer perceived value. If there's anything we can do to make our school safer, we're going to do it. So there can be pressure by parents, and there is. There's pressure by parents, by teachers, um, community members who are saying, uh, you know, it, it, we're hearing all of this on the news. We need to shut down our school um, because obviously if we have kids in close proximity, it's likely to spread um, the virus. So it could be a local decision. We've seen that already. That surprised me because I, I didn't think we'd see individual school districts doing this outside of county directives, but some schools will do this. And it's not different than how they respond to school safety. Um, districts respond very differently from district to district on their decisions to do, make school, how they make their schools safe. Um, so anyway, this customer perceived value local decision, you know, we school board says, Nope, we want we we want to do this. We want to shut down to decrease the risk. Okay, now obviously those kids have got to be somewhere. It has a ripple effect. You know, parents uh, staying home. It's probably going to overload any of the daycare settings, things like that. But that would be the second thing. So one, somebody tests positive. Second, it's a local decision to do this. The third, schools have attendance threshold criteria. This is seldomly talked about because it rarely means anything, but. Um, just because it can be the the neurovirus um, was was one, I, I don't think I have that completely correct. Um, you know, if there's a, a, a flu that's going around, other illnesses that are impacting um, school that you know aren't what we're talking about today. Uh, schools, you know, pe people get sick, right? So um, whooping cough, something like that, bronchitis, it's going around. If thirty percent of the kids are sick, the school will likely close. 30% of the kids in, in that, you know, K-12 school setting, they're going to shut it down. Um, and the reason is, of course, they don't want contamination and they want time to, to disinfect. Also, but look at this. If 30% of the staff are gone, it's unlikely they would cancel school um, if they still had, you know, more than 70% of their students attending. But what they would do is they would group students together. So they would combine classes. They don't have enough staff. It'd be hard to get subs too. So you might have one class, you know, where the two classes combined, 60 students, you're going to have a lot of students in the library, a lot of students in the, in the, you know, the gym and stuff like that. So that's usually just trying to get by until things come back to normal. So we have three things. One is somebody tests positive for COVID, local decision, or your attendance fails or falls below um, 70%. So like, you know, 30% of your kids would be calling in sick. Um, here's the fourth part. People forget about this. Okay. Disruption of the supply chain, including food, soap, paper towels, cleaning supplies, things like that. So schools only have so much of this stuff, right? And they go through it. They expect their, their truckloads to come in, especially, um, with food for your, for your school meals. Um, you know, schools don't stock an entire year's worth of food. It's not like a submarine going, you know, off on a mission. Usually it's month by month. Um, and they're getting, they're getting, you know, shipments in all of the time. So if we have a disruption in that where we can't provide hot lunch, and also if we can't get our soap refills, if we can't get our disinfectants into our school, paper towels, so forth, we're not going to be able to operate our schools, especially if we can't get our cleaning supplies into our school. So that's also um, happening right now. Uh, just recently, you know, within the last 24 hours, I was out at stores. You know, you go down the aisles where it's toilet paper, paper towels, sanitizers, um, cleaners and all that wiped out. Everything's gone. Okay, so we're going to see this, this really heavy strain on those supplies. Um, 
everybody's putting in orders for those, right? So at the same time, you're trying to ramp up manufacturing, get these things out of warehouses. You know, you have um, less people being able to go into work because of, of these, you know, travel restrictions. You're having things that aren't coming in from other countries. Um, so we just have a very strained supply line right now. So it could very well be that your school system simply runs out of, of hand soap, you know, of, of, of soap and paper towels. And, you know, they're saying we can't, we can't run our school until we have our, our stock back in. In that case, you know, it's not like they can just go somewhere and, and, and buy it. It's probably out in that whole region. That can happen very quickly. Um, it's absolutely amazing how fast it happened right here where I live. And I remember also the 9-11 attacks um, driving home that day from work and gas stations were already out of gas. Um, have the signs up, you know, no no gas because people had just gone and filled up. So we have this panic mentality right now, uh, which is exacerbated by everything that we're hearing through the news. But So that would be another reason. So we have four reasons so, so far. Um, somebody tests positive, local decision, um, attendance falls or there's a disruption in the supply chain. Now, the, the, the fifth reason simply could be that there is a government decree to close schools. This would likely happen at a county level, um, but you know it could also be state to state. Now, what will happen is in Wisconsin, for example, we have 72 counties and the counties would say, don't put it on us to make that decision. Yes, maybe somebody tested positive or we have some people quarantined in our county, but you know, if you put that on us, then you know, all the, there's a lot of pressure, right, to do that versus having a state step in and say, listen, you know, we are going to shut everything down. Because here's the, here's the problem with shutting down, with one county saying we're going to shut down. County said, says to its schools, we had, you know, some people test positive. We are um, recommending to, to you school to close down. Well, every school that hears that would say, yes, we will close down. Um, but then how about the neighboring district? You know, you're just separated by an invisible county line, right? People still travel back and forth to work and do shopping and all of these things. We don't have travel restrictions. So they'll be like, well, they closed down. And that case is only 35 miles from us. Why aren't we closing down? Because if, you know, people go to that community, we could bring this infection back to us. So I think it's very likely that there would be a state decree a state would come out and and say we're going to we will shut down now the states can also buy time with that right so you can say we're going to shut down and we don't know when we're going to start up we anticipate we're going to go through our measures of of you know sanitizing our buildings assessing where this goes and make a decision and that so buys you time if you do that now the reality is once you close the likelihood that you'll open again this year, very low, very low, okay? If you're shut down at a state level, it's unlikely you'd open again this school year, just so you know that. I mean, just so you're upfront with that, that no, it's not gonna be two weeks and then we're gonna open and we're gonna open back up on April 15th or nothing. It's probably not gonna be like that with the way this is timed out in the whole incubate, how long it takes to, to incubate and it just, I would say it's very unlikely that the school would open again. So just so you can start, you know, putting these things kind of to mind. Um, it would be absolutely incredible for a federal decree to shut down all schools. I've, I've never seen that. Um, that would, I mean, be massively um, overstepping of anything that, that we've ever, ever seen in this realm. But could it happen? It could. Um, so... But likely, it's to be a county-level decision. Um, we then have social proof of other counties, other schools around that county would would consider closing. Um, and then, I mean, if it's likely the state, you know, states could could do a complete uh, closure. And then, very unlikely that there be a federal government closure, but not off the table, right? So let's take a, take a look back in 2014 and probably don't remember this, but in 2014, um, especially once we got into the, the spring of, of 2014, big issues with the MRSA bacteria in schools, in hospitals. Um, it was showing up in, you know, uh, gyms where, you know, people work out, fitness centers, things like this. So the question was, you know, so MRSA is this bacteria, right, that, you, you get, it gets a cut, it gets in your skin, 
And basically, you know, people have called it like the flesh-eating bacteria. That's not exactly accurate, but it kind of brings to mind that, um, you know, these can be really significant. Like kids, um, adults, people can lose, you know, limbs from this type of stuff. And it was happening too at, at big uh, sports, you know, arenas with professional athletes who, you know, were getting this because of, of some, you know, being tackled on the, the turf and now had this MRSA infection, having to go to the hospital, be on antibiotics, very intense. Um, so anyway, back in 2014, President Obama issued an executive order combating antibiotic-resistive bacteria. That order included a multi-agency plan in 2020, it was due in 2020, right now, right, to respond to the threat of domestic security. It was a plan that would mandate standards for electronic recording-based reporting for MRSA. But as of right now, okay, as of right now, nothing's in place. We have no MRSA database um, that hasn't been established in the U.S. or other countries. So that similar type of database system would be probably the system you'd want to use right now to be tracking um, the coronavirus. But again, I mean, the coronavirus is going to be more difficult to assess because it looks like so many other things. You know, maybe you just have a cold or caught the sniffles, whatever. Um, and it's it's more objective when you're, I think with MRSA, obviously, if you have a sore that is growing, that's going to be more, um, you know, quickly identified. And we don't have the testing uh, mechanisms out there. MRSA, you really, you know, if you have it, you know, manifesting on, on a cut or something, you know, it's it's not going to get better on its on its own. Um, so what was happening back in when all of this was coming out, right? Schools are really panicked about this because we didn't have numbers. We didn't have hard core numbers on how many people were being infected with MRSA, how long it took to recover, um, because people were being treated, but we didn't have this, this aggregate database. So, um, you know, how long did it take before it became inactive in different settings? You know, like if it was in a weight room, uh, might be in a lunchroom, on a bus, whatever. So schools started to buy these germ disinfecting robots. They were called Gronks. And if you just think of something that's about three foot tall, made of metal, okay, and it it goes in a classroom and they get everybody out and shut everything down and it shoots these laser beams all over and it basically then does this disinfecting type process. I don't know the exact process, but... You can look it up. It was in that article that I wrote. Um, it all it was. This was in a Massachusetts high school in 2016 that they're talking about this this robot. Now this company had sold hundreds of these things, right? They were going like hotcakes because anybody that could afford one of these, even though they're a hundred thousand dollars, even though there wasn't any evidence to prove that that room w- would be any safer than if you went in with a bleach and water solution, you know a and cleaned it, okay? If you thoroughly cleaned it, that, you know, that would be that would be safer or less safe. I mean, there was, nothing was comparing these two, but it was the fancy, expensive, germ-fighting robot that people wanted. This customer perceived value, and everyone was willing to sell this because they're in a panic. And that's actually what's happening right now. So customer perceived value. It happens with school safety. It happened back uh, in the MRSA scare. Um, but schools are heavily marketed to, and right now they're being marketed devices to sanitize your schools, whether it be this, this robot, um, or whether it be some special backpack that you're wearing that has some sanitizers and and your custodians are going up and down the hallway, spraying this stuff, making a fog, um, and killing allegedly, you know, everything that it comes in contact with. So if this makes great news stories, so just in my area alone, they've showed some schools that have purchased this. And of course, they're showing the custodians going up and down the, the hallways and in the classrooms, you know, spraying all of the stuff and spraying, spraying it on the bleacher seats in a gym that seats, you know, 3,000 people. Um, so it's visual. It's customer perceived value. It's what people want to see. It's people wearing backpacks, you know, and, and all of this stuff. Um, it's kind of like the Ghostbusters effect. Um, now, you know, one of the things I've read here, these, these sprayers um, have electrostatic um, are electrostatic and charge the disinfectant, which allows it to stick to more surfaces. So, I mean, maybe, but we also know as of today, March 9th, um, 
the federal regulators, U.S. federal regulators are, are warning seven companies to stop selling soaps, sprays, and other concoctions with false claims that they can treat the coronavirus or keep people from catching it. There are no approved treatments for the virus and none are likely to be ready for months or years. Okay, this is actually coming from the, the FDA. So again, schools will be market these things, you know, and maybe somebody isn't explicitly saying, you know, that this this is a treatment for the coronavirus, but they can say this does kill viruses, which wouldn't be false, right? Because actually just rubbing soap on things and wiping it down destroys viruses because viruses have that lipid layer to them and the soap dissolves that. So that's one of those things where people can sell you something with and they're not actually being untruthful, but you are your bias, what you want this to be, your confirmation bias is you're hearing, all you're hearing is this kills viruses. This will reduce the number of viruses in the school. So this is crazy stuff right now. It is absolutely crazy. So you have to think about these devices being sold for exorbitant cost. And then you have to buy the refills for these things. Okay. So, and here's the deal, you know, social proof. When one school buys these backpacks and they're on TV and, and spraying down their buildings and stuff like that, other districts buy the same thing, right? Because they get pressure. Why aren't you taking measures to be as safe as our neighboring district? Why aren't you buying these things? And as long as they can stock them and get them out to you and, you know, and charge the prices, you're going to do it. The school boards are going to do it. So this is what's happening. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power, School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So, you know, let's go back to who makes the decisions. In many states, <laughs> their Department of Ed's they come out and they put statements like this. I'm quoting one. This is pretty ubiquitous. It is up to each school district to have its own pandemic plan and communicate it with families. Okay, which is a good way for the state to say, yeah, we're we're not going to give you a lot of guidance on this. It's going to be up to you and the local health department um, unless we come out with a state decree like from the governor's office saying, hey, we're shutting down everything. So, yeah, you're not going to get this this great direction from your state department of ed anywhere on this. Now they might say, "Oh yeah, we give we've given a ton of resources out." Trust me, I've seen them. Everybody forwards them to me. It says, "Dave, what do you think about this?" It's not bad, but I mean, this is just stuff in a file that they forward it to you. Um, so it, again, you know, who makes the decisions? The decisions are probably going to be made um, at a county level of whether to stay open or not. School districts can individually decide. If districts do that, they're probably just going to close for a short amount of time, um, uh, maybe a week. Um, or we could see states jump in and shut down schools at a state level. Um, here's the other part. You know, so schools, it's impossible for schools to screen kids um, without actually testing them for COVID-19, right? So we have a school district of 4,000 kids and you're, you know, are you going through every day and checking that every kid uh, has a, a typical, you know, that they don't have a fever, right? So you're checking them through the door when they come in in the morning. And if they do have a fever, then what are you doing, right? Maybe they just have an elevated fever for whatever reason, or, you know, it's, it's strep throat or it's bronchitis or it's a cold or whatever it is. Um, unless you're actually administering the, the coronavirus COVID-19 test to them, you're not going to know. So if you administer the test, then hypothetically, the, the child would have to be um, 
quarantined, right? They'd have to stay home. You wouldn't want them back in the school. Just as, you know, we get directions all the time. Hey, if your kids have a temperature above, you know, what, 99 point whatever, please don't send them to school the next day. So the thing is, we're we're nowhere near being set up for schools to test to see if kids have coronavirus. And the other part is, like, that would continually change, right? Because what if somebody, all the kids go home that day, kids, you know, work, that they interact with different people, relatives, they go places, they might go to movie theater, whatever. The next day when they come back to school, maybe some of them have been exposed to the coronavirus, um, you know, in the last 12 hours. So this is one of those things which also is very misleading if somebody says, you know, we're going to be screening or testing at our schools. It's very unlikely to happen. There's just the infrastructure the number of tests, the number of people you need for that, it's just not going to to happen. Um, So while some schools, again, choose to close, some individual schools, which you've seen around the country, school districts, the dominoes will tumble when a county health department recommends that the schools close. So if a county says, hey, we recommend you close, that whole county will close. Likely the adjacent counties will feel the pressure, they'll close too. all right, let me move on to all right the the concept of a FEMA site, Federal Emergency Management Association site. Okay, so there is a possibility that if hospitals fill up, okay, and that schools could become FEMA sites for different aspects of either coronavirus management, having people go there. Um, who for quarantine or having people go there who have tested positive for you know treatment. Um, it could be a staging of assets in the community. Um, you know, meaning that you know food and water and different things are are staged there to limit so people don't have to travel to other areas. Um, so there there's a lot of things that could be happening um, in using those school facilities. So the reason they would use school facilities, is schools, people already know schools, right? The schools have parking lots and schools have, you know, bathrooms they, you know, that are made for, for masses. They have, um, you know, lunch prep, most of them, uh, abilities. They have large spaces such as an auditorium, gymnasium. They have smaller spaces, classrooms. So you could hypothetically retrofit a school into an emergency site very quickly. And I actually went through that. I'm going to tell you about that. In 2018, I I was a school administrator in a district that had an elementary school and a high school temporarily transferred to the jurisdiction of FEMA. Okay, here's what had happened. Um, Floods, um, catastrophic um, 500-year floods. They sliced this community of 10,000 in half, you know, literally took out the bridge uh, there were uh, several acres of homes completely destroyed. Eventually, they had to be bulldozed. The land couldn't be reclaimed. Um, this area was declared a disaster zone by the governor. FEMA arrived in Army vehicles, okay, Army Reserve vehicles, so like Humvees, trucks. They had numerous potable water tankers, and they started to set up at um, the high school, and which was on one side of, of the community, because again, the river cut this community in half. Literally, it was a 45-minute drive to get from one side of, the, of this community to another um, because, of, because of this flood. Um, so here's what happened. So FEMA took over two buildings, the high school, which was a newer building, and then a larger elementary school, and both were located on different sides of, of the river. So, you know, the entire community and surrounding area could get to both of these settings. Um, now, as FEMA arrives, okay, there was little we knew about this ahead of time. So apparently this was in a county plan. The county knew that if there was a disaster and there was declared a disaster zone, you know, tornado, whatever it would be, in this case, it was flood, that um, FEMA then could come in and, and declare certain sites that they would basically take jurisdiction over temporarily to provide services. It's not different than when there's hurricanes and things like that more common in the southern part of the country. But this happened very rapidly, and nobody was really aware of how to interface with FEMA. Nobody practiced this. We never had a tabletop exercise. Um, They just kind of were there. FEMA got their orders. They came and they knew what to do. Like they had practiced several times how to set up um, in situations, you know, like this. 
So what was most surprising to me, though, FEMA actually had armed guards and they would position at the corners of the buildings and then also in the parking lots. When I say armed guards, I mean actually with, you know, holding uh, rifles and, and with pistols, very visible, right, in, in, you know, full military gear. So I'll tell you a little bit why that happened later, because I did have an opportunity to talk with, with one of the guards. Um, so this is very imposing, right? They come in and they're bringing all the supplies. We had very short amount of time to prepare the school, meaning um, get anything out that we needed. It was right toward the end of the school year. Um, students were not in school that day because everything had been closed down because of, of these floods. Um, but we had very little time. It was, it was I would say, between four and eight hours total that we were notified um, at a school level. Again, not that the county might have known this longer and maybe it was in, in again, their, their plans and it was just, it was hidden deeper, but we didn't know. So basically we're getting out the essential things we need to get out. And then, you know, FEMA's showing up and they take over the site. They take jurisdiction. They took the keys. Um, they had access to the to internet. Um, the, our buildings and grounds um, had needed to meet with them. Okay, here's how many freezers we have. Here's how the electrical works. Here's how the HVAC works. And basically it was their buildings, their buildings for, you know, basically like 10 days that the state of emergency was in place. What they did is they set up shelter for people who needed shelter. And they also set up ability to uh, process claims for damages. Um, and also, to, again, to stage assets for to, for that community. Potable water, for example. Um, huge tankers coming in marked potable water. Um, I was given a badge, and I still have it. I still have it. I was given a badge by FEMA, and because I was a school administrator, and it, I was allowed 30 minutes a day in either one of those buildings. And I could not access the internet. I couldn't get on the system that was... And I could only go to certain places, like to the offices. And really, like, I didn't have any reason to be there. At that point, it wasn't a school anymore. It was a FEMA facility. Um, and it was basically a home for people who had been displaced. So it was very weird. It was very, it was a very odd feeling. Um, I, what I will say completely is I was fully respected by FEMA, as everybody um, in the school you know, we were respected, but, you know, if you were a teacher, you know, you wanted to come back in and get something or, hey, you know, your parent and my kid left their, you know, stuff at school that you weren't getting back in for any of that. Now, we talk about the armed guards, the armed guards in the parking lots, um, people would would show up and they would bring whatever they had with them. OK, I remember somebody that arrived in a pickup truck and they had in the back of the pickup truck, their washer and dryer, which they got from their house. Uh, it was newer, this washer-dryer set, and the whole house was flooding. It had been destroyed, right? But they brought this and a couple other things that they had filled up the back of this pickup truck with, and they wouldn't leave this truck, right? They're in the parking lot, and they're saying, this is all we have. This is literally all we have. We're not leaving this. Um, and I guess, you know, you put yourself in, in their minds in that moment. I mean, that is, that's that's your self-similarity, right? You're Taurus. You try to to... to keep things as, as, as similar, as normal as you can get them during chaos. And for them, like keeping these things was a way for them to, to have some self-similarity during this completely chaotic situation. So they were allowed actually to stay with their vehicle in the parking lot, which was all, you know, special entrances and you had to be checked by FEMA to get in and out. Um, you know, no one's going there to sightsee or anything like that. Um, but they were they were able to they, they um, would go in and get their meals. Um, their vehicles were, were watched over. They would come back out. Um, again, this was this was short term, and this is kind of what happens in a unprecedented crisis situation. So, um, again, you know this this was absolutely um, a phenomenal experience to, to be through, the insight of, of being in a district where FEMA did come in and had jurisdiction over, over two buildings, how rapidly that developed. In retrospect, the county, everybody involved in that at a local level, uh, went back and revisited safety plans and said, you know what, we never planned for this. We never thought of how we'd interface with FEMA. We never thought of what it would be like if they were to come in, take over our buildings, like things that we needed to have together for them. 
Um, you know, like I, I don't know to the full extent, but it was things of, you know, yeah, HVAC, how much electrical draw does certain things have, which rooms are air conditioned, which rooms aren't, can you do negative pressure in some areas? I mean, all of these things like our buildings and grounds folks know, but it's like that we wish we would have had that information at their fingertips ahead of time. Um, because that was, you know, they had to, to learn on the fly as FEMA is showing up and taking over these, these buildings. So it was about 10 days later um, when people had, had settled back in with, with relatives or found more permanent um, housing FEMA process of claims and things were done. FEMA ended um, their stay, uh, basically packed up in a matter of hours. Everything was gone and the schools were completely turned back over to the district. It was absolutely, again, this remarkable process to go through. Now, I'm telling you this because if hospitals fill up due to a pandemic, there are only so many um, beds, right? There's only only so much capacity in a hospital. And then even if we have people in, in hallways and other areas in hospitals, um, we're going to only have so much capacity for parking lots and for getting food and water there and serving and things like this, where it is going to make sense to identify some other facilities to do that, which likely would be schools. Um, so I'm, I'm making you aware that that's something that can happen. Okay. And I would say if it does happen, um, my experience with it was, it was, it was very unsettling at first because I hadn't seen anything like that not only as a school administrator, but as a parent and just as, as, as an adult, right? I hadn't seen that happen. It's very unsettling to go to the, the high school and, you know, get, get your past checked in. And, and so anyway, I was talking, I did have an opportunity to, to talk during a slower uh, time with one of the guards outside. And I said, you know, can you tell me why you're here? Because I just, help me understand this because I didn't expect this. And he said, Oftentimes, when people show up um, after a crisis, they're they're very desperate, right? And it's for the fact that we don't we need to make sure we project a very strong, um, I, I guess for for sake like a linear under control environment because that helps people function better. They come in, helps them process their claims and things better. It's not so much that they're there because there might be looting in the environment. That's not the case at all. People are usually very generous, very caring for other people. Um, you know, we've seen that what with the tornadoes um, in in Tennessee in, in the last week. But it is there to basically um, make sure that we do have order. Um, and also that people become very desperate. You know, people, he said um, to me, you know, people who demand, I need to be the next in line. You know, I've lost this or... Um, you know, we need this amount of money to keep going or have this bill to pay or whatever, and people get very desperate. So it's that whole part of making sure um, that you, you have somebody there who can respond to that and de-escalate people. But again, I would say, you know, they were exceptional to work with. It was this very, very eerie feeling for me, though, um, one that I will never forget to this day. Actually going back, talking to people who were involved in it, it was hard to even recall the whole event, it was, it was, it was, you know, like, what did we really experience? And I actually went back and read some of the debriefings, some of the news articles. Yeah, we, we were not ready for this at all. The county wasn't ready for it. The state really wasn't ready for this. Um, but, you know, FEMA did know how to respond to this. Uh, they had, you know, been tested in many other areas, hurricane response, so forth. So, you know, they came in and this whole thing of, of, you know, staging assets, making sure people had shelter, things like that. What this would look like, though, if this happened, FEMA activated for coronavirus, it could be staging assets at these sites. That's where they could be telling people to get their food um, and and water. That's where they could be testing. Maybe they turn into quarantine sites. I don't know, but it's logical that this could happen. It's probably in the pages of um, safety planning, especially at the county level. So let's go back and do a, a recap here of I want to do um, the reasons again why a school would 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 close due to the coronavirus okay so the reasons would be if somebody tests positive and they're a student or a staff member and they've been in that school okay they test positive the school's going to shut that down and they're going to then go through this massive disinfecting process and likely you'd have to have some period of time when that school would just need to sit 
Because if you bring everybody back in a day or two, you have no idea if the people you're bringing back into the building themselves are are infected or if items that they have on them are infected. Um, you know, you go to a mall or, again, a grocery store and you, you're handling something that somebody else handled and it was sneezed on. Or, I mean, you don't know. And also the fact that, you know, you think you can just disinfect a school, a million square foot campus, right, with, um, you know, a backpack sprayer and, and you know, bleach and water and these things. I mean, yes, you can hit the high um, contact areas, uh, handles on doors, desks, things like that. But I mean, how are you cleaning your ventilation system, right? Um, things that, that might be living in there. Um, how are you getting into every, you know, crevice of a, of a locker or, you know, in, I mean, so there's so many things, so many areas, if you were just to go through, right, in, in black light that you would find, oh, we didn't get this area, we didn't get this, this area, we, you know, we're getting our high contact areas. Yeah, we're doing that. But, you know, again, somebody sneezes and they're close to the air ventilation and the, the droplets disperse and get up into air ventilation. I mean, how, how are you working with that? You know, state-of-the-art schools might have better systems for that, but most schools don't have any type of system um, to do that. Or universities, right? They, they, they just don't have that capacity. So, you know, it's, it's the best thing. What can kids do? Before we get back into what causes school to close, wash your hands, right? Everybody, wash your hands. Um, and and teachers saying, you know, hey, get out of there as fast as you can, get back into the classroom or whatever. You wash your hands also to prevent allergens like food allergies, um, peanut residue, things like that from, from lingering. Wash your hands for a solid minute. Get kids in there, monitor them, wash your hands. Okay, hand sanitizers are good. They don't do anything for allergens though. So like peanut allergies, you wouldn't use hand sanitizer because it doesn't neutralize the allergen. Um, so just go back into hand washing. Absolutely number one hand washing. If you're sick, you go home. But what would cause schools to close? Yeah, somebody tests positive, a local decision, a district just feels, hey, you know, we've had maybe uh, some people in, in the county who have tested positive or not too far from us or we're just going to do this. We feel this is the proactive thing. There's usually a lot of pressure by very vocal uh, parents, communities saying, we want you to shut down. The third part is schools all have attendance thresholds. So if a certain number of students aren't showing up and maybe they're not showing up because they're afraid that there's going to be a, an outbreak, right? They don't want to be um, going to school when they believe their peers or staff members could be contagious. So parents aren't sending them. So you're going to get to a threshold then. And usually it's about 30% where schools would say, we're just going to shut down. Okay. And then that's, I mean, that's temporarily, but, um, and number four, people overlook this, but if there's a disruption in the supply chain, and we're having some of that right now, we've had major disruptions at ports like the port of Baltimore, for example. But if we can't get food, Schools don't stock, you know, usually more than a few weeks of food. It's not like the old days where you bid out a contract and you bought stuff for an entire year. No, usually you're working with third-party vendors. You're getting things in for a few weeks and, and that's it. And, you know, these supplies have to be replenished. So, um, you know, that the fact that you couldn't get your, your food supplies or if you couldn't get soap, you couldn't get paper towels, you couldn't get cleaning supplies. There's a run on those things right now. Um, likely it would be prioritized, right? That those would be going to government facilities, be going to schools, but there could be a situation when you could simply realize, hey, we, we can't get our soap and paper towels and our, you know, disinfectant because we've just had X number of cases, which tested positive, you know, in our community, everything is bought out. Um, our vendors are telling us they're on back order. What do you do? Um, so disruption of, of supply chain. Um, five is a government decree to close schools. Likely it would happen at a county level, could happen at a state level. Unlikely it'll happen at a federal level. So now the questions I receive from parents of students with disabilities specific to this is, so Dave, our student has an IEP, Individualized Education Plan. What do we do for them um, if the school is shut down, because wouldn't, wouldn't the school have to provide services? It's a federal document of, you know, that they, they need 
you know, what, whatever it is, occupational, physical therapy, um, support for, you know, learning disability, speech language, so forth. So they, the answer, the short answer is I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. I teach courses to aspiring special education directors, um, school legal issues to superintendents. And this is like, it's a case study, right? You'd have to basically look above for guidance on this because either the federal government would need to come out and say, because IDEA, the Individuals with Disability Education Act is a federal law. They would need to say, we're giving some exemption for some amount of time because of this force majeure event, this, this unanticipated pandemic, right? We're going to basically say IP services for, you know, March, April, May, June don't have to be fulfilled. Districts should try to do that, but if they have to close, we're not going to hold them um, liable for that. That's a possibility, right? Um, states wouldn't have that ability. States can't overrule federal law. So the state couldn't do that. Um, the state, though, could make some rulings and saying if you're providing education in the school, kids at home, and you're providing it through online or through phone calls or through Skype or whatever, um, that would would qualify as meeting some or all of these services, whether it be educational or IEP services. I mean, speech language, for example, services already can be provided by teletherapy. That is actually authentic. That's been around for a few years. So what do you do for that? Or what do you do for mandated school counseling service, psychology services? So maybe some of that, they'd be like, yeah, you could do that. Now, this is all happening right at a time when systems are very strained. So people uh, are not going to be putting a lot of time into these types of decisions when the questions are, you know, how do we make sure essential services are operating, that our water towers are replenished, that we are staffing our ambulance, fire and police and all of these. So um, I look for whatever happens at, a, at, you know, at a state level for guidance on, you know, education service to, to be pretty, pretty narrow, like pretty saying, here's, here's what it is. Um, and right now, this is basically, you know, districts should have a plan and whatever. Right. We get that. But what's going to happen is counties will make a decision. Eventually, um, if enough counties declare that they're shutting down, they recommend that their schools shut down, the state would jump in and have to make a decision to shut down state services or not. Um, so, yeah, th this is this is, you know, for me. Um, again, being a school administrator, we never went through these type of pandemic drills. If anything, we only had a discussion for a few minutes at a meeting once a year about it because it was so unlikely to happen. But this is different. This has a different feel to it. Um, I just think we can see a magnitude of, of closure that we've never seen um, in modern times in schools. So be very, very aware of that. Um, as a parent in a plan B. I mean, if, if our kids are home, what are we going to, to do? Um, because what if, you know, if our kids are home, if they're shutting this stuff down, maybe they're going to be shutting down, you know, theaters and, and malls and, and things like that. So, um, you know, also instructional materials that you might have available to you, you're going to be able to pull a lot off the internet. Um, this is just, it's really crazy times, right? It's just, it's crazy stuff. So in closing, you know, stay, stay safe. Um, and make sure that you're being um, informed of what's of what's happening. Uh, again, keeping in contact with what your county is is recommending. You know, for for schools, for you know, large gatherings, for nursing homes, and all of that. You're going to get a lot of guidance from your your county on that. Um, and just as a parent, you know, you need to be vigilant. You need to do your due diligence. Watch what is happening around you, um, and. And, you know, make sure that you are taking measures to keep yourself and your, um, you know, students safe. Uh, and again, as I thinking as a teacher or administrator, th these are very challenging times to be in. Um, it would be very, uh, very difficult to be a school administrator, obviously, right now, um, even with the questions of if one district closes down, would neighboring districts also close down? So um, I found the best information actually um, to be coming out of, um, I think it's John Hopkins, although, you know, the CDC stuff seems like it's a little bit, a little bit dated. Um, and of course, everything that shows up on the news, right? Breaking story, breaking story, latest updates and whatever. Um, that's, you know, just kind of the way, you know, news media is going to really um, not be your best information uh, conduit for, for this. So, 
This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perona. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.